Welcome to the Financial Literacy Bootcamp, where certified financial planner Dominique Henderson discusses financial topics in plain English for the investing public. Dominique is the owner and founder of DJH Capital Management, LLC, a fee-only registered investment advisory firm offering comprehensive financial planning and wealth management services to entrepreneurs. You can visit them on the web at www.bjh-capital.com or on social media by the hashtag Financial Literacy Bootcamp. Now here's the host of the Financial Literacy Bootcamp, Dominique Henderson. Welcome to the Financial Literacy Bootcamp. I'm your host, Dominique Henderson, and the Financial Literacy Bootcamp is designed to help the financial services industry to be a more relevant, reliable, and respected partner to those we intend to serve. And we do that by describing financial topics in plain English for the investing public. So here we are with another episode, episode 45. And um, feels like I've been gone a while. This may not come to a surprise to you, um, but it's no secret that I typically record um, a bulk, a big block of shows, probably three to four um, on the weekends to kind of help with my scheduling as I'm growing a practice and servicing clients and doing all kinds of other things, including being a husband and father. So, um, (laughs) in order to keep this up, it usually makes sense to, um, take about three or four hours and just record a lot of episodes. And it's been a while because uh, I had some travel that went on, celebrated a wedding anniversary, 20 years with my wife. And we, had some very much needed downtime um, from both of our careers. So it, it feels like I say all that to say it, it feels like it's been a while since I've been in front of the mic. But I wanted to piggyback off of episode 44, which was entitled Know Your Numbers. Um, and we went over some of the the more important financial ratios and formulas for personal finance. And um, I wanted to follow that up with really, it is not really a part two, but um, some questions around probably some of those numbers or at least formulas and uh, ratios that we discussed. Um, Some of the more popular questions and what they mean. So as you may or may not know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you probably do. I participate or partner with Investopedia they have a program called Advisor Insights, which it basically allows anyone from the public to submit a question, a finance, personal finance question. And me and a ton of other advisors uh, get the privilege of basically going through those um, and answering those. Now, it's not our responsibility to answer all those questions. I don't want to mislead you, but typically speaking within the realm of expertise of our collective Uh, knowledge, we can answer those questions. And sometimes Investopedia's uh, staff will come in and curate some of the uh, topics and answers and write their own answers. So basically what you get is a, you know, a treasure trove, if you will, of of different advice from financial professionals that participate, participate in this program. So um, made the choice to do that early on. And I've been doing that for nearly a year now. And so what stems from that is a lot of purview into different questions that investors have around personal finance, including the questions that come across, uh, with my own clients and in my own practice. So, um, Investopedia, just so you know, they do, 
I mean, they're arguably one of the world's leading um, resources for financial information. Um, as you can see, if you're watching this via YouTube right now, they have more than 20 million unique visitors and 60 million page views per month. So they're getting a lot of visibility. Um, and I guess it's, I say all, all that to say that it's, it's probably, um, it's probably believable or we can take for, um, you know, instance that whatever they're, you know, publishing as content that's important to you and I are, are probably important to the, the large group of investors. So I, um, the questions that I do answer, I get a, I guess a report of the most popular viewed answers, uh, my answers and other ones, other advisors that answered those questions. And I thought it would be kind of apropos, uh, following episode 44 about knowing your numbers to kind of go through some of the more popular questions, uh, that I've heard in practice and answered on that, that for, in that forum. So we'll, we'll hit three today. And I think, uh, that'd be, that would be good enough to, uh, fill the, um, fill your ears and, and minds, hopefully with enough, enough content and make it meaningful enough. So one of the, I guess one of the first questions that is the most popular is what is a good debt ratio and what is a bad debt ratio? Um, and we did cover debt ratios in episode 44. Um, so you want to go back and look at that. Um, but basically this is the, let's just take away good or bad from in front of debt ratio and just describe what the debt ratio is, which is basically going to be whatever your monthly debt payments are, uh, total monthly debt payments and divide that by your monthly gross income. So that's a, a debt ratio. Now to slap the term good or bad in front of that really kind of depends. And as I intimated in episode 44, a, the typical underwriter when they're making a credit decision on your behalf is going to, you know, use about 43%. So for every dollar of income, about 43% or no more than 43 cents should go to debt payments, to service debt payment, whatever that type of payment is. Usually they can get that information from your credit bureaus, one of the three or all three. And so uh, they're typically looking to loan you something or loan you funds if your ratio is inside of that 43%. So most practitioners, uh, myself being a certified financial planner and going through their curriculum, there's a couple of ratios that they use. But um, if you want to stay around that third, and I think that's what I gave you guys for um, for last episode, um, I, I think, you know, once you start to go above a third, it becomes very difficult to save and invest like you need um, because your 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 spending is 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 getting out of control um, on a long term basis. If that continues, you won't be able to save enough for retirement on a short term basis. I, I totally get it. But let's talk about some of the things that this question really points at. Um because we always try to look at the question beneath the question, right? So the question of what is a good debt ratio and what is a bad debt ratio really points at how much should you delay in your consumption? Um, if we split your consumption into future and present, not really worrying about the past since we can't do anything about it. Um, if we divide those two, uh, we have how much you're going to consume in the future versus how much you're going to consume right now. And typically speaking, people that have bad quote unquote debt ratios 
pull too much future consumption into the present. Um, that is well beyond what their means to actually live and afford. So that's the real question you're asking. And then subsequent to that would be how much or to what extent can you afford to continue to pull future consumption into the present without having a negative consequence is essentially what somebody's asking. And so, you know, maybe a good example is when you buy a home, right? So you are buying a home, financing it over hopefully 15 years, maybe 30 years, and you're bringing a considerable amount of your future consumption into the present. Um, but again, this is a lifestyle, lifestyle expense that most people have to have. You have to have somewhere to live, whether you choose to rent or own. Um, there's typically not that much differential on a relative basis. So most people choose to own. Um, now when here's the other thing though, but when you buy a house, obviously all the creature comforts that go into that, like furniture and maintenance and, uh, upkeep and things like that, that is where people start to toe the line of going beyond that third of, um, you know, a, a third of your income being used to service debt. And so that's what I would say is that's kind of your barometer. If you can stay within the third, um, of your income going to service debt, then you can likely, um, live a good life in the current and also save enough for the future. But you have to watch your spending, uh, um, especially across assets that don't appreciate over time. A home appreciates over time, but, you know, cars and clothes and things like that um, do not largely. So unless you're into like collector cars or something like that, but most of us aren't. So you just have to kind of watch that. So to answer that question, what is a good debt ratio? Um, I would say something inside of 33%. Uh, what is a bad rate, bad debt ratio? Uh, typically, once you go over that 33%, we're starting to get in that territory. Once you definitely go over 43%, which is what the underwriters use, you're, you're in the, you're in a bad debt ratio. So, um, let's go on to the next question. What, or can an individual contribute to both a Roth and a traditional IRA in the same year. Um, and just to simplify this, because technically tax years are different than calendar years. You get an extra three months every calendar year to contribute to make contributions in the tax year. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to clarify this by saying the same tax year. Um, and the answer is yes. Right. So um, currently for 2016 and for 2017, uh, 2016 last year, uh, tax filing deadline just passed not too long ago. Um, it did not change, but the amount that the IRS allows you to contribute to a individual retirement account is 5,500 if you're under the age of 50 and 6,500 if you're over, um, the age of 50, if you're over the, if you're 50 and over, you get the 5,500 plus an additional thousand dollars called a catch up provision. Um, so as long as your total contribution doesn't go over either one of those numbers, which whichever applies to your age, then you can contribute to both a Roth and a traditional. So you may choose to split them right down the middle at twenty seven fifty a piece, or you may find some other method of, um, you know, splitting up that total contribution. Now, I will say 
since there's a couple caveats here, right? So yes, you can, but why would you do one versus the other? So here's the question beneath the, uh, the question beneath the question. So from a strategy standpoint, depending on your income level, and I'm not going to get into all those because they change all the time. And that's really not the scope of this podcast. I try to keep them evergreen so that um, no matter when you're listening to this, um, it will apply. But for the most part, you'll just need to check what you make because you're, the, the number that you're, the, the IRS is looking for or looking at is your modified adjusted gross income, which is MAGI in short. Um, that will delineate whether or not you're able to contribute to a, tr- a traditional IRA and then deduct the contribution from your gross income in that tax year. Right. So you get a tax deduction for contributions made to traditional IRAs. Um, there's some there's an income caveat around that. And there's also a participation in um, an employer's qualified plan caveat around that. So you need to, you know, do do your fact checking or, you know, sit with a person like myself, a, um, a financial professional that knows those those rules or a tax advisor, some someone of that sort um, to to help you through that. But um, since those rules exist, a lot of people say, for instance, if a client will not qualify for a deductible traditional IRA contribution, then you could argue, well, why would you even want to put money in an IRA since um, you have to take it out by age 70 and a half and you have all those other restrictions? Whereas a Roth, if your income, if you satisfy the income levels, which, again, you have to check that because they change all the time. Why not just contribute to the Roth? You don't get a deductible contribution in either case. And then the Roth allows you to keep the money in there growing tax free for a longer period of time, whereas the IRA is just tax deferred. So there's some strategy around how you would structure your contributions on any given in any given tax year. And that's just for you to kind of decide along with your financial professional whether or not it makes sense for you. But yes, you can contribute to both a Roth and a traditional in the same tax year. All right. So last but not least, how did the financial crisis affect the banking sector and can this happen again? So I already gave you the question then I gave you the question beneath the questions. Sorry about that. Okay. So how did the financial crisis affect the banking sector and, and can this happen again? Um, I think this is a very, this could potentially be a very long answer and I'm going to try to keep it very short and sweet. Um, the, the short version is the financial crisis. And just to be clear, this was the great recession that lasted between 2007 into 2007 into the first part of 2009, um, really predicated by the housing crisis. And the, the best way to explain this is that lending was constrained because there was a lack of trust in the system. Right. So let's just, let's just break this down and I don't have my whiteboard today and I apologize. But so if, if you are a bank and your job is to lend funds, right? Forget about how the funds got there, like through deposits and all that kind of stuff, because that just complicates things. But a bank, um, there's two ways to spend in this economy. You either spend cash or you borrow, right? So a lot of spending happens through borrowing. Um, a lot of people just are not sitting on the cash to make a cash purchase. They, they need credit. So banks are in the business of lending, um, loaning credit. And if they don't loan credit, they can't make 
what is called the spread, the difference between how much it costs them to acquire the funds or borrow funds um, or pay funds that pay a rate while the funds are on deposit. However you want to look at that, they still have a cost of funds and they earn the difference between how much it costs them on those funds versus what they lend them out at. So with that being said, if a bank ceases that activity, they can't make money. But a bank would only cease that activity if they didn't think they were going to get their money back from the person that they loaned them to or and or the collateral against that loan would not be sufficient to then sell the collateral and recover um, or, you know, remunerate them in other words. So I guess all that to say, when you basically take trust out of the system for whatever reason, in this case, um, you know, the housing crisis really, really um, took trust out of the system by the repackaging of mortgage loans that were really not worth what they were billed to be, right? The mortgage industry um, was guilty of, along with several other industries, Wall Street included, of repackaging home loans that were not worth the quality um, that they once were. And when this trust evaporated, lenders of last resort, like banks, stopped lending. And um, like I just illustrated, if you stop lending, there's a big part of spending that stops also. So there, the, therein lies the, the, the recession. And how this affected the banking sector, I guess I, I just pretty much explained that. So the banks couldn't loan, so they couldn't make money. And so when banks don't lend or make money, basically spending pretty much comes to a halt, which is the reason why the Fed had to come in. Our government had to come in and say, we will be the lender of last resort. And what did they what they end up doing is a couple of things is they lowered interest rates so that banks were not incentivized to keep any cash, but to loan it out anyway. That's one thing they did. And the other thing they did is they bought the securities that banks were holding that were not really worth anything or were not worth what they should have been. Um, and they bought them not at their market value, but they bought them more so at their intrinsic value so that the banks would not take so much of a loss. And what that did is flood the system with a lot of cash that banks could then use to start lending again. That's the gist of it. That's the short story. And I probably didn't make it that short, but <laughs> anyways, that that's pretty much how it happened. So, and there's tons of resources out there on that. So you can fact check me and whatnot. And I, I probably didn't explain that the best, but for the most part, you, you have to understand that the banking sector plays a large a part in our society, which is largely consumer driven and largely consumer credit driven. Can this happen again? Well, could it happen again in the way that it happened before? Um, there's been a lot of legislation, um, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, and some other measures that um, were put in place to make banks more resilient from an asset standpoint. Um, but here's the problem. Although it may not affect the banking sector the same way it did in 2007, 2009, or may never even ever happen again, is whenever you have a asset bubble where the price of the asset trading in the market is well above what it's really worth, you have to watch it. That's all I'll say is that, you know, it's hard 
to have an asset that is say worth a hundred, um, as far as its value is concerned, but is trading in a market where it's, you know, twice that or one and a half times that, because eventually what ends up happening is the person, the last person that buys it, the ultimate last buyer will eventually want to sell. And there's going to be some seller that's going to say, nope, it's not really worth that. And then there starts the domino effect of kind of how the housing crisis happened. Um, you ended up having, you know, um, banks that had to take the value of the mortgage loans that they owned on their books and start writing them down to what they were worth. And that in their, um, their kind of caused the problem there. So all that to say that financial crises are rare, um, in that they don't happen every market cycle. Market cycles tend to, you know, evolve in and around about seven to 10 years, and so it's good that financial crises don't happen all that often. However, you have to be able to, you know, kind of look at the things that could um, predicate a, a crisis um, and those type of things so that you can be aware of how that may affect your portfolio and your investment strategy going forward. So hopefully that all made sense. <laughs> I don't now that in retrospect, I'm like, why did I pick that question? <laughs> It's very hard to, to explain and, you know, in like five or seven minutes. But anyways, hopefully that's been helpful for you. Now, listen, if you are a consistent listener of our podcast uh, via iTunes or um, Android device or however you're doing it, I would really appreciate, the, um, especially for you iTunes listeners to write a review, take the time to write a review. Um, tell us what you like if you don't like it, yada, yada, yada. Just your feedback is is very important as far as our ranking in uh, the iTunes music store and podcast store. And uh, you can always visit us on the web at djh-capital.com on our blog at djhendersonsr.com. Uh, we can be found on social media. If you search the hashtag financial literacy bootcamp, um, you, can, you can find us there and consume the content there. Also, our contact info is 214-699-7599 and we can be reached at info at djh-capital.com. As always, have a great and prosperous day. Take care.